Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcast, to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter, myself at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter, and of course to check out our Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode and in our bios on social media. Also, as ever, head over to our Patreon, Pot Pantheon All Access, for bonus episodes of the show, access to our Discord channel, and lots of other fun perks. We have a really cool four episodes up there so far for our Patreon listeners and so much more fun content planned for the future. So the link to join Pop Pantheon All Access, our Patreon, will be in the show notes of this episode, and also I will post it on social, so I hope to see some of you over there. Oh, also, you can go directly to patreon.com slash poppantheon to get the Patreon access as well. Also, we have merch, poppantheonpod.com, dad hat over there, and actually, we have some new surprises coming soon, so get over to our merch store, get yourself a dad hat. Great gift for Christmas, I would say, to the pop fan in your life, the niche legend dad hat, if I do say so myself. Also, I want to say that we are making a call for voice notes. We're doing a year-end episode where I'm going to go through all of the rankings that we've done in the past year and see where I'm at with them all, how I feel about them, having had some time to reflect. If there's anything I want to shift around, anything I want to change, I don't know. I just want to take a look at what we ranked this year and see how I'm feeling about my decisions. And we want your opinions. So if there is a decision that you felt was wrong, if there was a Pop Pantheon ranking that you feel was off or you felt I didn't nail, we'd love to hear from you. And we're going to include some voice notes and reflect on what you have to say in the episode live on air. So send us a voice note to poppantheonpod at gmail.com and we might include you in our episode. So we want to hear from you guys about disputes. Finally, my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is happening on December 3rd in downtown LA at Resident. Come hear me DJ pop music all night long. I would love to see you guys there. Link for that also in the show notes of this episode. And again, on social media. This episode of the show is a bit of a sticky one. It's about Amy Winehouse, who is a beloved and tragically short-lived pop career, someone that was revered in their time and perhaps even more revered since her passing. And in this episode, we get into a lot of what it means for a pop star to die at or even before they've peaked, before they really even have a legacy to reflect on. How do we relate to the material they've left behind? How do we relate to the tragedy of their story? And how does that all add to their legacy or detract from their legacy or affect their legacy as a pop act? So this was a really fascinating, sometimes very sad conversation, but I'm really happy that we had it. And I'm really happy that we had a chance to look back on some of the great music that Amy did get to release in her life and to maybe wax poetic about what could have been, where this all might have been going, because there was a lot to look forward to, and we'll never know what was there. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Amy Winehouse. I'm How does a pop star's early death 
especially when they pass at the peak of their powers, affect their legacy? This is a difficult and thorny question, and unfortunately, we have far too many cases to examine. Buddy Holly, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Marvin Gaye, Kurt Cobain, Tupac, and Notorious B.I.G., just to name a few. The British soul singer Amy Winehouse, who exploded into prominence in 2007, both as a result of her aching, clever 60s girl group nodding sophomore album Back to Black, and, more depressingly, as a central figure in the depraved Perez Hilton era of celebrity tabloid coverage, which often cruelly chronicled her descent into drug and alcohol addiction, presents a particularly fascinating iteration of this question. What happens when a star dies, perhaps before they've had a chance to fully form a legacy at all, mostly just leaving behind a very auspicious early salvo and the mere promise of greatness? How does that affect how we pick over what precious little they were able to do while they were still with us? How much speculation about what may have been to come, about what pop history might have been deprived of, is worthwhile? Amy's story and the flashes of true brilliance she gifted the world in her fast and furious wake provides an intriguing window into some of these questions especially about how a scarcity of material can infinitely expand into mythological proportions. But ultimately and frustratingly, the work and legacy of Amy Winehouse leaves us with far too many questions about what could have been and far too few answers about why things had to go the way that they did. Amy Winehouse was born in 1983 and raised in the Southgate area of London. Her father Mitch was a window paneler and her mother Janice a pharmacist, but much of Amy's extended family were jazz musicians, and from an early age she was raised on the genre, learning about artists like Dinah Washington, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday, and more. At age 14, after possibly, by her own account anyway, being expelled from school for piercing her nose, Amy bought a guitar and began writing and performing her own music and singing with a local group. In her later teen years, she made a demo inspired by jazz greats like Vaughn, which eventually landed in the hands of legendary music manager Simon Fuller and, later, in those of Island Records A&R rep Darkest Beasts. Beast was spellbound by Amy's singular, rugged, and stirring contra-alto voice and intuitive, almost improvisational singing style. By the time he'd found Amy, though, she had already connected with American hip-hop producer Salam Remy, known primarily for his sample-heavy work with the Fugees and Nas, and recorded a number of songs that would eventually end up on her debut album, 2003's Frank. Beast signed Winehouse and Island released Frank, a record that gestured equally towards the classic jazz and soul Amy had been exposed to in her youth and the sounds of late 90s and early 2000s hip-hop, a combo sometimes referred to as neo-soul. The record also featured early iterations of Amy's signature on-record persona, equal parts bitingly caustic and devastatingly vulnerable, a shrewdly observational and studied classicist with a fierce, unpredictable streak. Most of the songs chronicled her experiences with no good man who didn't live up to her expectations, like Stronger Than Me, You Sent Me Flying, In My Bed, and What Is It About Men. Others featured flashes of her satirical brilliance, as on the single Fuck Me Pumps, a deeply biting takedown of over-the-hill gold diggers. You don't like players, that's what you said, but you really wouldn't mind a millionaire, all them big ballers, don't do nothing for ya, but you'd love a rich man six foot two or taller, 
Frank was a critical darling, netting Brit Award nominations and being shortlisted for the Mercury Prize. But none of the singles cracked the top 50 in the UK, and the record made no ripples outside of her home country. Winehouse also eventually partially disavowed this record, saying the label had chosen songs and mixes she didn't approve of. Following Frank, Amy dated and briefly broke up with her future husband, Blake Sybil Fielder, who had served as an assistant on some of her music video sets. A devastating experience that inspired the majority of her sophomore album, Back to Black. During this period, she also developed a fascination with girl groups of the 1950s and 60s, like the Ronettes and the Shangri-Las, adopting their signature beehive hairdo and enlisting American soul and funk band the Dap Kings as her backing group. Most importantly, while conceiving of her sophomore effort, Amy connected with American DJ and producer Mark Ronson, then primarily known for his work on the alternative hip-hop scene. And Ronson, along with Remy, turned to the demos Amy had written about her breakup and how it had led her to drug and alcohol abuse into lush, pitch-perfect recreations of Phil Spector, Holland Dozier Holland, and Ashford and Simpson-style mid-century pop soul music. Released in late 2006, Back to Black was an instant smash in the UK, featuring a slew of hit singles like the slinky, ferocious blues number You Know I'm No Good, the Ain't No Mountain High Enough pastiche Tears Dry on their own, and the ominous and gut-wrenching title track. It also received near-universal plaudits from music critics on both sides of the pond, who praised Ronson and Remy's painstaking recreations and Winehouse's wounded, soul-bearing lyrics and ability to both nod at the period she was homaging while also rendering a persona, as well as vocal and lyrical flourishes, that featured a thoroughly modern perspective on love, romance, and substance abuse. The critical buzz around the record, along with the tireless tabloid coverage of Amy's increasingly erratic behavior, led to immense fascination on Back to Black in the United States as well, where the record exploded in the summer of 2007 and made Amy a truly unlikely and perhaps also quite reluctant overnight pop superstar. Winehouse scored her sole top 10 single in the US later that year with her signature song, the defiant, hilarious, and in retrospect, deeply troubling Rehab. Back to Black was a bona fide left field success story, a record very much not in conversation with prevailing pop trends of the late aughts, but worked very effectively as counter-programming, able to appeal equally to the young audiences who drive the pop music industrial complex as it was with their parents. In late 2007, Winehouse scored the biggest hit of her career, a Back to Black-esque reinterpretation of the Zootons' Valerie, released in collaboration with Ronson and which hit number two in the UK. The unexpected nature of her fame, though, clearly took a huge toll, and Amy, simultaneously to the record's peak saturation, which included multiple Grammy wins and eventually 16 million records sold worldwide, was publicly deteriorating, canceling numerous shows and unable to complete others due to blatant intoxication. Unfortunately, things only deteriorated further for Winehouse from here. Throughout the ensuing couple of years, while the public clamored for a follow-up to Back to Black, Amy appeared in incessant, often unduly savage tabloid coverage, increasingly emaciated with an eating disorder and clearly in the throes of serious drug and alcohol addiction. While numerous attempts at recovery were made in this time, on July 23rd, 2011, Amy Winehouse died from alcohol poisoning. It was an event that both shocked and also felt sadly inevitable. One compilation of unfinished work, Lioness, was released later that year. In the wake of her death, a panoply of pop artists old and new have paid homage to or cited Winehouse as an influence, including 
including U2, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Green Day, George Michael, Rihanna, and Courtney Love. She is also widely regarded as having set off a throwback soul music revival in mainstream pop that continues to this day, most notably with superstar Adele. Amy Winehouse had two number one albums in the UK and two top 10 albums here in the States. She also had three top 10 singles in the UK and one here. Back to Black has sold 4 million copies in the United Kingdom, making it the 13th best-selling album of all time in that country. Amy won five Grammy Awards, three Brit Awards, four Ivor Novello Awards, four MTV Europe Music Awards, three MTV VMAs, three World Music Awards, and was nominated for the Mercury Prize. Here to discuss the soaring highs, impossibly tragic lows, and forever unfulfilled promise of the all-too-short career of Amy Winehouse is musician and writer Sasha Frere Jones. So I am here with musician and writer Sasha Frere Jones. Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I really have been such a huge fan of your work for so many years, and it's really an honor to have you on the show. And I'm particularly excited about having you on for this episode because... We're going to get into a topic today that we haven't really had a chance to address on the show yet. This show, as I was sort of off-miking with you just now about, is about assessing pop stars' legacies. Like, how do we think about pop stars' careers and Toto as we look back on them? How does culture reflect on that? And we haven't yet done an artist on the show that died very early on in their run, had an untimely early death, which is something that unfortunately happens quite a bit with legendary pop artists. Right. And I'm really interested in this artist we're talking about today, Amy Winehouse, for a number of reasons. But I think getting into it, I'm fascinated by the way that an artist's death that occurs kind of before they've really even had a chance to fully blossom into the artist that maybe many people suspected they might become or that mm -hmm. their music might have gestured towards becoming is remembered and how we either inflate or elevate things to a degree that they might not have been had the artist not passed in an untimely way. And I felt like you were the perfect person to have this conversation with because in reading your work on Amy, including during her life when she was still alive, I always felt like you had a very sober take on her music and her artistry and weren't swept up into like the back to black mania that sort of occurred when that record was sort of mm. universally agreed upon as the second coming. Mm -hmm. I felt like you respected her and really got what made her special, but I also feel like you had a very clear eyed take on what was going on there. So for all of those reasons, I'm interested in first asking you, generally speaking, how do you think an artist's untimely death can play into their legacy? How do you think it does affect an artist when they die before they've maybe made the totality of their peak era work? Well, thank you for saying nice things about my work. Of course. It's weird because the bad news is it probably helps everyone. Mm. Like, for instance, someone like Nick Drake, who was well regarded when he died, his career or his, his star, his catalog didn't really come back into focus until something called Fruit Tree, this box set in the 90s, which where I found him. Actually, my friend John Corbett played him for me, and I was just blown the fuck away from the first mm. song he played me, and I've never really changed my opinion. And he became, over time, better known. Lucinda Williams covered him. Other people have covered him. And his death, which is still a little bit, it's unclear if he committed suicide or not. His death probably 
helped his legacy, but it's hard to say. Jimi Hendrix is the most fascinating one to me because he's simply at the apex of all musicianship and every single note he played was interesting. And not having him around is a real loss for humanity. And I mean that in the corniest, biggest sense. Like, mm. I want to know, nine to the universe, he's starting to play funk. He's starting to stretch out into something a little bit like what Miles is doing. Like, not having him around is just a tragedy that I kind of think about all the time because right. he was going to go somewhere that no one else could go. And then there's somebody like Kurt Cobain, where I love Kurt. He was in so much psychic and physical pain. I don't know what would have happened if he'd lived. I wish he had lived, obviously. Also, we're almost exactly the same age. I forget how many days apart we are. Oh, wow. So with Amy Winehouse, the death tends to make everything much more serious. Like Ian Curtis is a great example of someone who easily could have become a total cheeseball had he lived. And I don't mean that really in a negative sense or a judgmental sense. Like I think right. everyone should do whatever the fuck they want. Sure. I don't believe in selling out. I think that's a classist, frankly, racist myth. Just get the bag, whatever. But like also it becomes boring. Really good artists very intentionally, like Dylan is the best example or one of the good examples. Like they kill their younger selves because that's such a burden. Like, can you imagine Ian Curtis for 20 years being asked to like duplicate that same intensity? He probably would have become like a lounge singer or something just to get away from that shit. You know, Dylan was saddled with this sort of political voice of a generation thing. And he almost immediately was like, hell no, I'm crashing my motorcycle. No, I didn't. And I'm going to get the hell away <laughs> from you weird hippies because this is corny as hell. And I just I just want to do whatever dumb shit I think of. And right. here's the problem. The stuff that you're venerating is just other dumb shit I did that day that you have arbitrarily decided was fantastic. And like mm -hmm. Amy's just an awful, <laughs> awful case. The movie, it's really one of the better movies about someone. And it's frustrating and infuriating and awful. And the worst the worst part, again, is that we lost her and that she's dead. But also that she was such an idiosyncratic and unusual and direct person and singer that she would have almost certainly done something really interesting and unpredictable. I mean, she had to get away from a lot of different people deal with her disease. And that's fucking hard to do as an alcoholic and an addict. I, I look at that story and I'm like, man, if you just had one fucking decent person around you, mm. but somehow that wasn't in the cards. I mean, she did have some decent people around her and, and they did their best. But, you know, at the end of the day, she it was just an awful storm of elements. And what's interesting about what Amy did is like think of it as soul it's definitely an entirely black american form but then it goes through these mutations and we get stuff like at the outer fringes two british singers amy winehouse and adele who i both love and in their own way i think are sort of underrated i know that sounds weird to say but adele in some ways is such the opposite because she's such a sturdy completely bulletproof hilarious strong person like you simply can't troll adele like she's got you she reminds me very much of doja cat and rosalia people have grown up online and it's like mm. you're not going to scare them they don't give a shit what you think and adele is such a, an astonishing technician uh, i mean her singing is is frightening how good it is and amy had something else amy had this complete honesty and directness like her interviews are so fascinating because she never says anything that lines up with the thing you would say to be more popular she's often just answering questions completely directly and she's saying the same way that you just feel what she's doing right away but she's also she has a very strange singing style she added lots of turns that no other singer would have thought to put in it's not like she's trying to sound particularly like one singer or another and she's not trying to do anything technically properly right but the gift is there especially if you watch the movie her first sort of acoustic audition in the movie where she's just sitting there with a guitar mm -hmm. and playing the intensity of what she's doing in this very casual way is 
in some ways, my favorite performance of hers, because that is so hard to do if you don't know what you're doing. If you're not absolutely as one with your music, just sitting there in a room and being like, okay, well, here I am. Like, that's the hardest thing to do. It's more powerful than the stuff that's on record. It just shows you how much just came out of her. Right. And that's like, if we're talking about ranking and stuff like that, I see it also with Rosalia. There are people, they just exist in front of you and so much humanity comes rocketing out of them that mm -hmm. it's not even really a musical question anymore. It's just like this person is so alive and so losing her feels really kind of cruel because people just picked up on that immediately. People who have no idea what classic soul is or what Mark Ronson was referencing when he made that record. Yeah, they don't even know when Amy is talking about Nas. They don't know what she's talking about. They, right. they just connect with this incredibly... <laughs> vibrant sort of raw nerve of a person mm. and it's so difficult to hear all of that aliveness in those records mm. and then be like damn because she was so not media trained she was so not yeah too obviously in, in a way that's tragic like she was so not adele she was so not ready to like mm -hmm. push everyone back and be like get out of my fucking way like i'm here she didn't do that she just didn't have that skill set but that's unfortunately what makes the music so compelling well i think oftentimes when people are that raw nerve that very alive as you just said type of person it can make living difficult and i think that she's an expression of the challenge of that she felt obviously on a humongous level and was able to emote and sing from that place which makes her music so as you said compelling but also probably was the root of maybe some of her struggles in life yeah i think kurt is really the parallel there and that they're both so smart and funny and they did i think in kurt's case they did have some defenses they were able to get by a little bit, but you know, mm. their addictions and their pain, they were really fighting through uh, some stuff that they just couldn't get through. But I mean, Amy's also hilarious. Like that movie makes it clear how fast and how funny. And also the friendships, those two friendships she had are just the love she had for these two, like not fabulous, like not industry people, <laughs> yeah. like that she was still someone right. who like loved people for who they were. It becomes so hard. Look at someone like Kanye, who's in some ways. Yeah impossible to bring up but like i don't maybe feel any sympathy anymore but i feel like when people are looked at so intensely for so long mm. the scale of attention of fame it drives people crazy Kanye is a perfect example i think all that happened to him is that he's was a semi kind of neurotic fairly normal person who just had in some ways a not illogical response to fame like look at what fame does to amy winehouse like it really seems like you're talking about a disease as real as COVID when you talk about fame and you watch that movie, like For sure. she was killed by fame. And that seems like it's trying to get someone off the hook. And I don't mean it that way. I just mean like her life would have been a lot better if she simply wasn't famous and was just singing in a bar somewhere. And Kanye would have been a neurotic, slightly annoying producer had he not become as huge as he did. And, and now he's in the stratosphere of illogic. It feels like the difference between the two of them is that, especially in looking back at Amy this time, and I'd be curious how you perceive this, I think Kanye always coveted megastardom yes. and like really saw that as one of his driving, motivating factors from the beginning. Whereas with Amy, I don't get the impression that she foresaw how incredibly culturally saturating she was going to become, nor do I right. think that she necessarily wanted that. Like, no. I think there's a version of Amy's career that's much smaller and perhaps could have been better for her mental health Absolutely, that she would have been perfectly fine with. It was like, at some point, the sort of hype machine around all of this overtook 
and she became something much more humongous and stratospheric than she ever had intended to. That was my impression looking back at it this time. Even in the peak of the mania, it didn't feel like she was courting it. It didn't feel like she was hitting her marks necessarily. And I think another point that I just wanted to bring up based around what you were talking about that feels relevant is that she was also, unfortunately, a casualty in a very specific moment in celebrity media coverage that was particularly cruel yes. and where our society in the sort of Perez Hiltonification of it was incredibly comfortable just sort of like laughing at somebody having a struggle with alcoholism like yes. drawing coke on her nose in Perez Hilton posts we obviously haven't cured the ills of our celebrity tabloid culture yet but i do think we have made strides since then i don't think it's as culturally acceptable to sort of just mock someone like amy winehouse we essentially as a society were laughing at her until she died largely speaking obviously there's exceptions to this but that felt like the vibe around it so not only was the paparazzi in her face but the coverage was so cruel i mean god knows i'm always bracing to find some terrible thing i said about somebody and i I don't think I've ever engaged in anything like that, but no, I agree with everything you're saying. Again, I don't want to sound holier than thou because I love gossip as much as anyone. And, and sure. I'm not going to pretend like if you sent me a folder, like, you know, last photos before Amy's untimely death, like, would I open that folder? Like, I, fuck, I guess I would. Yeah. Like, I would, I wouldn't feel good about it. And I wouldn't, no, no, I wouldn't no. be glad that anyone sent it to me, but you know, we can't help but look at these things and they appeal to the worst parts of us. But what we do with all that is sort of where we find our humanity. And and I don't even want to feel bad for Amy because that feels insulting to her. Like uh -huh. she could have worked out her own shit. And a lot of people, man, they them dying or living is just like one or two bad fucking strokes of luck. And like Amy could have lived. She could not have lived. I, you know, I don't think she was weaker than other people or something like that. I think it was just a lot of fucking bad luck and a lot of that disease and a lot of, you know, a lack of care. But yeah, I mean, we can look back on it unfortunately you know i've dipped my toe into the recovery community as a professional and like there's not that much we know about addiction and recovery like we call it a biopsychosocial disorder which means we have no idea what it is because that's everything right <laughs> we really don't know that much about addiction but we sort of know how to treat it we we know a lot more about fucking paparazzi like don't do that <laughs> you know what i'm saying like i have no idea how to help amy the attic now that she's gone and had she been in front of me as a suffering alcoholic i don't know what i, I would have tried what i know and it, it might not have worked but right. the part that we know about is stop with that shit yeah like there's no reason for that to happen to anyone because no one ever said like i'm addicted to pop actually that's not true some people love it but uh, 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 uh. <laughs> no you're right you're right talk to kim kardashian about that yeah okay i think there should be a button you can press and you're like I'm sorry, I'd like to invoke the reasonable law and like, please don't yeah. have any, no more photographers outside my house. Like, yes, you know, let them come to the show if they want to stalk me from the- Or from if the... you're like going to Nobu or whatever. Right. <laughs> Maybe you're signing up for it then. Yeah. But that's, you know, we're now 10, I don't know how long, we're like 15 years after Amy's death maybe now? 2011. Okay, well, I'm not good at counting. That's 11. All right, so let's say 11, <laughs> not 15, 11. Like things have changed a lot and you were sort of making reference to the fact that some things are not socially acceptable and unless the Australian or the British are involved, I don't see that kind of mayhem but I don't know. I assume that Harry Styles has a pretty hard back home. I think there's still mayhem, but I think what's changed more is that because of conversations about mental health right. that are more prominent in our culture, it is no longer socially acceptable for a Perez Hilton or whatever the right. comp is in 2022 to just overtly be laughing at somebody that is struggling in public. In the Britney, Lindsay, Amy era of this, that was 100% acceptable. Like nobody 
nobody was taking Perez Hilton to task or not enough people were taking him to task for the role that the public shaming, laughing thing was playing in it. That wouldn't have solved her getting her picture taken all the time, right. but it might have solved the way that we as a society were relating to what she was going through. And I guess the Free Britney movement is a very clear indication that the opposite is now popular, that people are really pressing back on that kind of awfulness and and they don't want this to happen. Right. All right. So let's go back and rewind about Amy a little bit. To the extent that you know, what is Amy's backstory? Like, how does she grow up? And what are the kind of foundations of her musical aesthetic and sort of anything we can understand about her from a young age that leads her in the musical direction that she ends up going in? You know, she's not like a pre-professional. She's not somebody who went the dance mom route and was like being trained backwards and forwards. But, you know, she gets started fairly young and she knows she wants to do it. And so she's got a fairly unsavory family around her, obviously mostly her dad. But she's got, you know, a decent friend network. And what's interesting is how little she has to do to make it work. Mm. She basically submits a demo and shows up and boom, she's signed. Like she doesn't toil for years. She's, you know, this adorable, beautiful young white girl and pretty white girls are the heroine of capitalism. Like nothing, nothing is ever going to top the pretty white girl, you know? Sure. What I was reading when I was going back through this is that she had family members that were jazz musicians and she grew up listening to like Dinah Washington. And she had this like very particular sort of culture around her that steeped her in these people. Lord, what a difference. A day makes There's a rainbow before me It is my distinct memory that her own sort of taste set was something she put together. You know, she loved New York hip hop. She loved soul. She loved jazz. She definitely seemed to exist a little bit completely outside anything to do with rock music. Uh Uh-huh. It's something interestingly that she simply never even gets near it. Despite her relationship with Pete Doherty, I guess, being the one exception to that. Right. But like, (laughs) I don't know if they ever even talked about her showing up like on a Libertines track or something, but you know that would have never happened. That's just not who she was. And she had this sort of incredible thing that real artists have where she saw herself in this continuum from the singers before hip-hop and then the singers who were sampled and then the people like lauren who were between these two worlds and amy just Mm. fell right into that is it soul is it hip-hop is it like what even is it neo soul is that a term you ever come back to oh that was such a dumb idea like that i mean that's that's just because i think as the words were coming out of my mouth i knew you were gonna say that was dumb. i think that's just because there happened to be you know an erica and a bilal and like a couple of people happened to show up and magazines needed to say something like i think what happened is really there was more than one person at a time and so there were four or five singers who seemed really really good and so jill scott you know and people and it's interesting how history is right going on because jill scott has become as in some ways the most important member of that cohort simply by being awesome and continuing to work. But in the time Amy's growing up and listening to all of this music, when all of this music is popular, the neo-soul thing was sort of denoting this idea of sort of carrying forth the idea of soul singing from the past and incorporating kind of contemporary hip-hop and R&B elements into it, right? Right. But I think what Amy did that was sort of weird and brilliant is that she kind of saw no difference between Sarah Vaughn and Nas. Like in her mind, right. <laughs> there seemed to be like, yes. you know what I mean? Like this sort of family of sounds that all went backwards and forwards in time kind of nonstop. And her own aesthetic was so in the best way that reminds me a little bit of sort of like 70s 
uh, London where you had like ska bands stitching together stuff in this amazing way. Like she was not in step with anything happening in American art. Right. She was white, which is another thing. But it was just like genuinely unique. What do you think in terms of like placing her in a lineage with someone like Sarah Vaughn? What is it about Sarah Vaughn that you think Amy just hypothetically might be connecting to? Like, what is it about the way she sings or what she's singing about or whatever it is about the feeling of that music that speaks to Amy? Uh, Sarah Vaughn has that same sort of technical skill and the ability. I mean, Billie Holiday is a little bit more the the obvious parallel because mm-hmm. the untimely messed up ending and also the just the raw sort of ache in the music. I mean, Billy and Amy are not that far apart. I sit in my chair Filled with despair There's no one could be so sad Sarah Vaughan totally. has just some of the same tendencies musically that Amy has, the ways of shaping the, yes. like Billie Holiday is a singer and Amy Winehouse don't have that much in common. The story is a little bit the same. Sarah Vaughan has more of that same ability to be really intimate and then really commanding. And there's a lot of stuff going on. Just one look at you. Billy was not that showy a singer, and Amy sometimes was. She used to go on her crazy little runs. And if you listen to something like Valerie, which is essentially doing something like the jam did with the town called Malice, they're doing like a Motown kind of stomper. Mm-hmm. But she's like, I'm not going to sing it like that. And she adds all of this sort of psychedelic like insanity to her singing that mm. just nobody else would have thought of doing that. They would have taken a sort of Ronnie Spector vibe with it or a Diana thing. And she doesn't do that. She adds all of this harmonic sort of almost distortion the way that she like think of how she just sings the title word you know valerie like how many notes and syllables does she add to the word valerie it's incredible right And it seems like a very simple, upbeat number, but she makes it sound almost terrifying. And that's the kind of thing Sarah was able to do, like do very unexpected things with standards and make things just seem so vivid and kind of the scariness, the terror, the sort of horror of life. That's interesting. You don't get the horror of life as much, say, in Ella, who I'm not trying to disrespect Ella, but I just mean- No, no, no. There's a darkness in Sarah Vaughan. I find even more than Billy sometimes because she held it together. I think her ballads are just absolute master classes and some of Amy's stuff has that same feeling to me and sort of like an unpredictability would that be a correct characterization yeah I think Sarah was a little bit more predictable right but she was able to do some stuff when she wanted to I think because Amy was gone so quickly like there was no even first wave moment to look back and sit down and be like so Amy like here you are at the end of this body of work because she doesn't even make it to the next thing right you know whatever she wanted to do next we didn't get there So Amy, as you were sort of gesturing at, gets kind of quickly swept up into the music industry. She has these aspirations to become a singer that she discovers at a young age. And she ends up working for Simon Fuller at a certain point, who ends up, I think, kind of partially nurturing her career or keeping her in his back pocket somehow, and then ends up signing her and helps her get a deal with Island Records, at which point she ends up connecting with 
the producer Salam Remy, who becomes like a really important catalyst in her career and creator of her initial sound. Right. Is there anything you can tell us about Salam Remy and where he's coming from and what he's potentially giving as a collaborator for Amy in this early era? I mean, Salam's a beast. He's an amazing dude and key to the Fuji's records. Right. great hip-hop remixer like i knew his name from hip-hop because he he did rap first and great remixes you know there was a moment you know late 80s early 90s where the, you know there was just so much good hip-hop coming out of new york and a lot of it was on major labels like almost by accident like you know all these people get signed so salam he was on a lot of columbia records i don't know if he was signed to sony or whatever i, I don't know what the deal is but right he has a reputation for being really good with artists and mm -hmm. i think he and amy had a great bond is salam as a collaborator for amy potentially someone that's a good fit to her because of sort of as you were laying out this 90s hip-hop aesthetic that he's arising from is a lot about looking back at some of the eras and sampling directly many of the eras of music that Amy is gesturing at with her own artistry at this moment and her sort of dual reverence for Sarah Vaughn and Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington along with her sort of like growing up in the hip-hop generation and growing up with Nas and Wu-Tang Clan and whoever else she was sort of looking at at that time perhaps Salam Remy is a spirit sister for her in some ways because of the way that he's constructing or part of that movement of golden in New York hip hop, which is also sort of weirdly also marrying those two ideas together. Then he grabbed the judge, screams out, nobody leaving, everybody. Get down, get down, get down, get down. From what we know from the interviews post-mortem and the records themselves, they seem like a perfect pair. Like, if you ask my dumb ass, like, <laughs> and the few times where major label people ask me that kind of thing, I'd say, oh, sure, that seems right. That seems fantastic because he's also good with songs. He's not just a beat guy and he's not a maniac. I think people really like working with him. So that seems like a great pairing and that seems to be what it was. And you said great with artists, which is interesting because obviously she's someone that's coming in with plenty of her own. She's not someone that's like needing to be Svengali necessarily. She's like someone that you probably need to sit back and help craft and nurture whatever her ideas are coming into the studio. Right. Like any true artist, she needed people to listen to her and, and trust that when she said, I need X, Y, and Z, is that she knew what she was talking about. And especially women in popular music had such an awful track record is that terrible guy who worked with Joni Mitchell and like taped her feet to the floor. Right. Yes. Oh my God. It often goes badly, even up until the current day. The one part where she gets incredibly lucky is really musically in that, I mean, I don't think Frank was necessarily a perfect by any means. Yeah. I don't even think it's that good a record, but it, it, it makes sense that it happened. Like it wasn't insane to think like, okay, let's try to see you as a jazz singer sort of. Right. So just to orient us a little bit here. So Amy is kind of this prodigy singer who has the attention of Simon Fuller and Amy gets this record deal at Island Records and she sets about recording her debut album, which is 2003's Frank with Salam Remy as her primary collaborator here. What do you think was the aesthetic goal that Salam and Amy were having on Frank? Like, what do you think they were going for with this? Again, speculating, that feels so much to me like a record guy's mm. record, meaning someone hired Salam and gave him a sort of a remit and said, like, you know, we're going for a new jazzy kind of thing. And it feels like it has to be a record company record because it wasn't 100% in line with what was going on. And it, it isn't in the tradition of the records that Amy loved. Like, she's not doing a Lauren thing there. So why anybody thought that would work is a little bit of a mystery to me because they seem to think that she was going to have an older audience or something like that. Uh-huh.
what you bring to me. I remember very clearly seeing it in the airport because I was traveling a lot back and forth to London. Lots was going on. Big moment there. You had the sugar babes, you had libertines, like all kinds of shit's happening. So mm-hmm. but they went for this sort of like conservative, weird. It seems to be imagining an audience for jazz that I'm not sure ever existed. Right. It's like they thought there was going to be some kind of upwardly mobile yuppie jazz contingent that was going to go for it. Like Nora Jones, kind of? Probably. That's a, Yeah, that's the much shorter version of what I just stumbled around saying. <laughs> yeah, I think the short version is they were like Nora Jones. Bingo. I left you by the house of fun I don't know why I didn't come Except, I mean, Amy, even in this form was so much edgier feeling the Nora. I mean, Nora Jones was as sort of down the middle as you could get. But you just answered the question, which is that Nora Jones, she sold 400 bazillion copies of that fucking record. Of course. Oh, yeah. That answers the question. What were they thinking? They were thinking Nora Jones. Mm. I take it back. It's not a mystery anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so glad I unfurled the mystery. Two words, Nora Jones. (laughs) All they wanted was Nora Jones because that did work. You referred to it once as a shambling cabaret debut, a high school yearbook photo, something better left to conversation than to the canon, which I thought was a really interesting description of it because- What a mean fella. But I think it makes sense because returning to it, it really is a record to me that is sort of really trying hard to show what it's doing. Like it's not necessarily embodying it so much as being like, I love jazz and I'm gesturing at these older musicians. And it's like, right. she opens the record by like scatting. You know what I mean? She's like, da da dee da 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 dee <laughs> You know, she really is out there just kind of being like, I have reverence for this other period. I'm not a Britney-styled pop star. I am gesturing at something completely different, which is credible, and it has a lot of heft behind it. But the music itself doesn't necessarily hold up to that standard all the time on this album. And it makes sense that it happened because she did care very deeply about those things. And the record company had Nora Jones or people like that to think about. So if you were going to make a cynical stab at like, okay, how is, how are we going to present this person? It's not the worst thing that ever happened to anybody. Like it's no. okay that they tried it, but I mean, now it feels more precious because we have nothing else to listen to. So like all of the scraps of recorded material feel like they're worth going back to. And I probably would be a little bit kinder to it now. I think what Frank felt like to me going back to it this time was that it feels like an artist that's really attempting to sort of feel around and figure out like what she's doing exactly in some ways it's like an incredibly organic natural thing like she's in the studio for the first time you know it's her first run through by that standard it's actually pretty good yeah it's definitely an enjoyable album but i think like some of the things that were sort of like jumping out to me are some of the things that i feel like maybe are missing that really come to sort of define back to black and make it such a more accomplished and memorable album is amy's like one of her strengths as a songwriter i feel like is her ability to very quickly like size someone up or like in one quick turn of phrase she's able to cut somebody or most importantly on Back to Black, self-lacerate. Because one of the things that makes that record so extra poignant in retrospect, but also such a powerful listen, is there's nobody that Amy turns that gaze on more sharply than she does on herself in that particular album. Yeah, And this album, to me, it directs a lot of that outwards. She's not quite as sharp as of a songwriter yet, but I mean, she still has a lot of the humor that she brings to Back to Black, which also is another huge strong suit in her songwriting. Like, a lot of really funny lyrics that are so biting. This record is like kind of a more typical breakup album where she's essentially like 
taking down a partner that has done her wrong. Like the opening song is this song, Stronger Than Me. And essentially she's basically taking down her ex-boyfriend for being too effeminate. The lyric goes, feel like a lady and you my lady boy. asking are you gay etc etc which is kind of like more what the vibe is on this record and I think a little bit why it's less singular because it feels more like there's moments on here that don't necessarily like contain those sort of like signature only Amy could write this line only Amy could sing from this particular perspective vibe there's this song you sent me flying she covers Moody's mood for love like there's a lot of just like this sort of it almost can come across as like lounge right. music sometimes You could put on in the background and it would be very pleasant, but you don't feel necessarily as like sucked into her sort of pathos. Were any of those songs hits like in England? No, not really. They were sort of like in the bottom rungs of the British chart. Like I think the highest charting song, like which was called Fuck Me Pumps is a very funny takedown of women who are like who she in her estimation are slightly over the hill and still trying to like land rich guys at the bar you know she says stuff like don't be upset if they call you a sket because like the news every day you get pressed <laughs> like you know it's like a lot of really funny lines about that and i think one of the more informative songs for like what her future music will sound like like if you know i'm no good is the ultimate amy self-laceration song this is the ultimate takedown of the outside this is the ultimate representation of frank being an outer direction of what she inner directs on back to black don't be too upset if they call you a because like the news every day you get pressed you don't like players that's what you But one of the more interesting songs to me on this record, there's a song in which she literally sings over the beat that Salam Remy made for Nas on Made You Look. They shooting. Oh, I made you look. You a slave to a page in my rhyme book. Getting big money, playboy, your time's up. With them gangsters, with them dimes at. There's a song called In My Bed that literally is the beat of Made You Look. And it's really, honestly, incredible to hear her sort of sing over this song. To me, that was one, maybe one of the most instructive songs for Back to Black, because it's about kind of the paranoia of intimacy. It's about like being in a long relationship with somebody and you start to feel like kind of suspicious of them. And she has a lot of interesting lines about that. And I think sort of reflects like what makes Amy's music compelling is when there's tension and there's darkness and they're sort of like creeping into every corner of her psyche. And I think some of this music on this record for me just felt breezy and like listenable and her voice is always good to listen to, but not necessarily like compelling in the sharp, unique ways that made Amy me so memorable on Back to Black. That was my assessment of it. When I got into Back to Black, I went back to this record and liked it. It really worked for me in 2007 or whatever. And this time I, it worked less for me than it had before. Huh. Because I think it misses that inward looking thing that like 
Back to Black is so compelling to me because I am so moved and disturbed, as you were sort of saying, that terror feeling mm -hmm. that you find in some of her singing choices. I find in some of her songwriting choices. like, right. And it feels like it is so bravely inward looking that it almost prophesizes her demise in this way that feels chilling in some ways. But the music is so much more compelling and her lyrics are so much sharper and her voice although much more haggard by that point is so much more sort of like dynamic and interesting to me than it is here, which as you said, this is gesturing at Nora Jones. There's like Macy Gray in here. A little, like there's certain things in here that are like, there's a genericism to this that I would never have thought of describing Amy Winehouse as, I guess, even though there are some really standout moments. One thing that comes through in the documentary very clearly is like, she felt everything very strongly, you know, like a younger person might say, Amy sort of had no chill. Like there wasn't a lot of <laughs> half measures in her feeling and her expression. So the, the relationships all feel very sort of dramatic and mm. slightly cooler heads would have maybe been a good idea with that mate. What was the, the tall guy's name? What was his name again? Casper or something? Blake something. Civil Fielder or something like that. Yeah, yes. Civil Fielder, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Right, I don't like that guy. No, me neither. <laughs> He didn't seem like good news, I gotta tell you. That's kind of like my read on Frank. And as you sort of were getting at, it isn't a huge success. And she very much disavows this record after it comes out. Yeah, she rarely played those tunes in her set ever. Basically never played a song from it again. Openly said that like she didn't select the final track listing. The label did all of that. She sort of says that like 80% of this record she doesn't even stand by, which is too harsh of a judgment. Even though I was kind of a little bit eh on it this time, it's still a really enjoyable album. And I think... As we were sort of getting at earlier in the conversation, when you're dealing with an artist who's left so little behind, it's like every morsel becomes more important and something that you want to like dig further into, even maybe when there isn't that much to dig into, which is like something that this album maybe suffers from on some level. So I think Frank, as we mentioned, makes her like somewhat of like maybe a niche star and like I'd say a lesser Joss Stone in the eyes of the British public, but has absolutely no... Ooh, a lesser Joss Stone. <laughs> Joss Stone was, was actually kind of big at this point, so that's worth mentioning. Well, that's interesting too, because I was going to ask like, were there other artists in 2003 and 2004 that were doing this throwbacky sort of vibe like that you can think of. Well, don't listen to me because I managed to somehow forget Nora Jones. So obviously <laughs> I'm... Well, Joss Stone feels like maybe one of the obvious precursors. Yeah. Are you digging on me? Yeah, yeah. I'm digging on you now, baby. Because we know that after Back to Black, this set up a huge wave, as you mentioned, Adele and Duffy and all of these people that were like gesturing at these past eras. But I'm wondering before we get into our conversation about Back to Black, are there other artists predating Back to Black that are doing this sort of throwback gesture towards the 60s soul sound that we should mention. And Nika Costa. Nika Costa. And guess who produced Nika Costa's first album? That's very much Mark Ronson. Yes, dun, there you go. Dun, 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 dun. That's really important. Dun, 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 okay, dun. I'm glad you brought up <laughs> Nika Costa. That feels important.
That song is still a banger, let's be honest. Oh my God, that album is, Nika Cross is fucking great. Pure Injustice, that record, she was fabulous in every way. Go back to that album, my God. Listeners, forget Frank, go back to Like a Feather, please. Well, and I think it's really instructive because that's obviously where Mark Ronson is beginning to play with some of the aesthetic ideas he's going to bring to Back to Black. That's an amazing, amazing track, that title track. I love that song. Me too. So Amy goes through a relationship in between 2003 and Back to Black with this guy, Blake. Right. They break up. It's a rough breakup and they do eventually get back together, but she writes the majority of this second album in the interim when they're broken up. So Correct. from what I understand is that she wrote a lot of the record on her own during this breakup period, produced many of the songs with Remy and then took a bunch of them and redid them with Mark. And some of the records, including Rehab, were written with Mark. The story of that that I read was that they were literally working on songs together, walking through the East Village or somewhere in New York. And she had been struggling openly with drugs and alcohol. As a result of the breakup, it had gotten much worse. And like a lot of her friends and family were very concerned about her. And someone in her life said, I think you need to go to rehab. And she said, no, no, no. And recounted that to Mark. And Mark was like, we have to go back to the studio this minute and write this song. During this period, she also becomes enamored with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, who are like a soul throwback outfit. And she enlists the Dap Kings, who are the backing band, for the soul singer Sharon Jones to be her backing band, which feels like a formative moment for the aesthetic of Back to Black. And then she becomes very enamored with these sort of 50s and 60s girl group sounds. Can you speak to what particularly she's drawing on aesthetically she, Mark, and Salam are drawing on for the sonic palette of this record? Yeah, sure. The Daptones uh, and the Budos band moment is really interesting and important because what happens is that after sampling, you get these guys who grew up on hearing samples of these records, and then they decide, and some of them are older and they know the original records, but they decide as musicians, they're going to recreate the sound of the records being sampled. Like the RZA, you know, sampled a lot of stacks. That was his thing. Mm -hmm. So lots of Albert King and, and things like that. And then there's obviously James and other things. There's a lot of African funk that is there at the beginning, like Manu Dubango. So you get these bands that mm -hmm. they don't want to be samplers they want to play and so they learn how to duplicate the sound and the production and the engineering and i was always a little bit wary as a musician and a listener like i didn't know what i thought of that i found it very attractive and sort of seductive but also like is this the way forward like aping records like that always makes me feel a little bit funny but I mean, I think what happens is that you get Amy, you get a completely original singer on top of it. And then like, well, that kind of changes everything because all of a sudden these bands, or you get someone like Sharon Jones, like these bands sound amazing because even if their music is looking forward, you've got a singer who's absolutely in the present and doing something unusual and obviously sort of indebted to the past. But with Amy, it's always like, what exactly is she borrowing? Because she always sounds like herself. And, and it's obviously right. within the tradition of American soul, but it's also this other thing that's just her. So that works. It's kind of just like a perfect storm that there happen to be these really, really smart retro people like the Dap Kings and Mark himself. And mm -hmm. they were smart enough that they knew how to take really brilliant pieces of the past and 
he's got that producer kind of stopwatch way of putting together like hook after hook after hook like the you know like right a song like uptown funk or something a few years later but like he keeps it moving from idea to idea and that's great for her because one of her secret weapons is she's just an incredible melody writer she just has mm-hmm. so many things to draw from so you know those songs are just one thing into into the next into the next into the next and you know i don't pretend to know exactly who made up every single lick in there but most of it seems to be coming from amy what are they drawing on exactly like if you could just lay it out for the layperson, like what is the sonic palette of this what from the 50s and 60s particularly are they going for here there's some of what you hear in the booker t and the mgs the band that played on the otis Redding records They're basically having sort of a Motown-like filter pack. Like they're using almost a Phil Spector kind of thing. Right, wall of sound. Combined with some Motown stuff, because that's a bigger, airier sound. It's a little bit also more innocent. It's not as like dirty as the Otis stuff. But the band is pretty virtuosic and they're moving through all kinds of... This is a little bit nerdy, but I think it's relevant. They're not playing James Brown funk. Mm. They're not playing the really syncopated, nasty, slightly more complex funk. They're sticking to a, a simpler kind of backbeat thing that's almost like... 65 to 66 to get totally fucking annoying with you here like they're like (laughs) staying before the james brown revolution because once james kicks in things start to sound really really different and then we move into things like shaft and we have a whole darker wilder world of funk and she doesn't for these songs they don't go to that they stay with this very approachable and frankly like I don't know how cynical this was, and maybe cynical is the wrong word, but they're going towards sounds that have been hits with white listeners. Like Motown, Mm. Motown was huge the first time around. Like it's not that risky to go to those tempos, those sounds, and that slightly girl groupy kind of sheen that's not quite as gritty as what comes after it. Geographically, this is more Detroit than it is Atlanta in terms of like 60s Americans. But, you know, they're, they're, bits, they're all very good at what they do. And so they're bits and pieces from everything. But I will stand by saying like, it's not James. This is pre-James. They stay right. away from that explosion because essentially also that makes it then sound like hip hop. That's another smart thing they did. It's like, well, once we get into the heavy one with the syncopation, it all is going to sound like Funky Drummer and Sex Machine. It's going to sound like hip hop. Right. Which is the one thing they ditch from Frank, which is like kind of wearing some of its hip hop influences on its sleeve. Whereas this record brings it more in like lyrical flourishes or like the song Me and Mr. Jones being a dedication to Nas, but it's not necessarily bringing it into the production choices. Yeah. One of the boldest things they did was to walk away from hip hop, which would seem from a record selling perspective, like you'd think, no, 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 you're supposed to be drawing from that. And and it was so perfect to be like, that's just going to confuse people and it's going to confuse radio programmers. And like, you know what? Let's just sort of weirdly forget hip hop, which is, I think, what the pre-James sound set kind of does, because the backing tracks don't sound like hip hop, but you push it forward a year or two to like a 67, 68 funk, and all of a sudden it's going to sound like hip hop. Well, let's take some of these tracks one by one. Like when you think about a song like Rehab. What are you hearing in that song, either in what she's talking about or the soundscape of Rehab in particular? Like, are there specific songs that she's drawing on for a song like Rehab? I mean, it's definitely drawing on a, a very Ronnie Spector kind of right. approach and attitude. Ooh, I love you. Oh, yes, I love you. 
And Rani is notable, I think, because even though she created some of the most accessible girl group hits of this period, she was edgy and had sort of that punk vibe to her in a sense, like Amy does. Right. And Rani was amazing because she's, you know, in the relationship with this worst human being of all time. But her persona on records is always really tough and you just can't mess around while she's also talking about these very sort of girlish things, which are very much sort of conceits, I think, of the songwriting. Right. She just brings also just such an incredible voice. Like Ronnie Spector just sounds like a- No one sounds like her. Car alarm. That person does not sound weak. And Amy- Right. Amy rarely sounds, no matter how much drama she's talking about, she sounds, especially in rehab, she sounds so jubilant and like- Yes. It's a genuinely strange song. Like I remember the first time I heard it because I, I think that was the single that came out before the album came out. Well, it was that and You Know I'm No Good as duo. Right. Rehab is like very, very full on 60s. I remember thinking the production and everything is making this huge statement about like 60s retro America and mm. it's so upbeat and sort of blaring and then there's this lyric so it has a very considering what happened it ends up feeling really a little bit strange right to listen to it a little bit queasy it's that duality that I felt this way listening to it this time I was like I'm at once like swept up and like so inspired in a weird way by her defiance that's like her perspective right. on the song and then I have to remind myself like actually that defiance like ended up being her demise in a sense As someone whose life was saved by rehab, I really wish she had just fucking gone to rehab. Yeah, I said yes, yes. I think <laughs> when it came out and, and, and sort of the implicit, because the singer who's singing it is alive, the implication is like, well, whatever struggle she's talking about, you sort of want to be on her side and think like, yeah, you don't need to go, Amy. Like, you're, right. Amy, you're Amy Winehouse. And you're lucid enough to write this banger of a song. Right. And here you are <laughs> joyfully, happily walking away from rehab. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Amy. Go ahead, fuck rehab. Yeah, sure. That's how it feels when you listen to it now. And I remember totally being in that vibe when it was out and she was still alive before things had spiraled to the extent that they did. It did kind of feel like, yeah, she's a badass and she gets into some bad shit, but like clearly she's got her shit together and like I'm able to empathize with her perspective on this song in a way that now, in retrospect, it feels very different to me. And 15 years ago, people talked about addiction and, and these issues, but it, it was still not talked about as easily as I, I think it's talked about now. Yeah. Well, it's wild to hear like a mainstream pop song that's literally addressing this stuff so directly. And I think that's also part of the song's magic is that it's taking some of these, as you were saying, like more pristine sort of throwback vibes from this particular era. But what she's talking about on it does not feel like typical mainstream pop fodder in its directness at all. I mean, I remember when it came out being like, holy shit, like the chorus of this song is about someone saying no to an intervention. Like that is an incredibly bold statement for a pop song. The pairing of those two things makes it very dynamic and interesting to listen to. It makes it a great song. And I'm very torn because as art, it's doing exactly what art should do in today's sort of trigger warning culture. Like you probably couldn't get this past the record company now. Right. And I could weirdly see myself in the position of being like, well, you know, in terms of the recovery community, this is an ideal. But then, you know, part of me wants to be like, but it's a song. And like, that's how we work shit out. So I wouldn't want the song to be any different or not be in the world. Cause like, it also seems to be an empirically accurate song. Like a hundred percent. That is what happened. And it's brave of her to put that out there. It's not exactly like making her look incredible necessarily. <laughs> well, exactly. Like we didn't know she was trying to go to rehab. It's a way of tabling the issue and being like, oh, but don't worry about it. I didn't go. Yeah, exactly. I'm exactly. fine. Here's my new album. And 
and it's incredibly funny too like I, I she has these really amazing lines that like capture this whole thing in something so seemingly simple but like I love the lyric where she goes the man said why do you think you're here I said I have no idea like I just find that lyric so illustrative of like her perspective like that is a funny line to like think about that scene playing out I could have blown up anyone's anonymity, but I have heard in meetings, I have heard people quote that lyric because in the early stages of pre-sobriety, denial is a huge uh, mm. part of it is that you think, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not like these other people. Right. And she moves through so many stages that I think would be recognizable to people that are in recovery. Like there's that other amazing lyric on the bridge. Like, I don't ever want to drink again. I just need a friend. I don't want to spend 10 weeks and make everyone think I'm on the mend. That is a right. really interesting line because part of her reasoning for saying no to this is that she doesn't want to give people like a false idea about her actually wanting to get help. I thought that was a fascinating lyric. But to use one of our favorite phrases in the program, she's telling on herself by even writing the song. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like she's introducing <laughs> yeah. a topic and then saying, oh, but don't worry about me, which is a very alcoholic thing to do, you know, to show up with missing your front tooth two hours late and be like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> like, that's essentially what she's doing. She's like, wait, she's not even singing some kind of like torch song about like, it's 3 a.m. and I'm still here. Like, yeah. no, she's saying like, no, 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 actually no. some people have already tried to send me to rehab yeah. and I'm rejecting it so strongly that I'm actually going to fucking make it my first single. And I think that that had such an, a huge impact on her public narrative because this right. song becoming the thing that makes her a superstar is like, she already said it. It created this interesting dynamic with her public where it was like, she is 100% aware of this and putting it out there. This is not subterranean. Right. And to draw my experiences as an addict, as an alcoholic, like, yeah. I'm going to go into the very dangerous world of mind reading and speculation. Please. She 100% wrote that song because she wanted to go to rehab. Believe me, if she didn't want to talk about it, she would have written a fucking song about squash or something like right. that. She writes the song because she wants to talk about it. She wants to get better. She wants to find her way to it. That's what happens is, is that mm. that initial, no, I'm fine. You're waiting for someone to say like, no, 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 you're not fine. Let me help you. Because she wants somebody to come back around and say, thanks for the song, Aim. Great song. Right. That said... Let's go back to the rehab issue. It reframes the little cute Mark Ronson anecdote as a little bit of like a missed opportunity on his part because obviously he cared for it. I'm not indicting him or anything. Oh, no, no. The anecdote that is always told by her father, who's an unreliable narrator, but by Mark himself, who seems like he whether he made a right decision, who knows, but like seemed like he really cared about her was that she told him that story and his reaction was like, that's a hook. Like, let's go back to the studio. Not like, girl, do you need to go to rehab? Which is his job. And you know, the thing about all of these stories that is absolutely heartbreaking and, and I now know way too many of them is the only person who's going to get you sober is you. Of course. And if she does or doesn't want it to happen, that's where the whole thing happens. And right. And what we can see from the story is that, you know, she had an amount of her, a part of her wanted to get sober. Like it was not something she was opposed to, but she also kind of sort of didn't want to. And, you know, that's the gap in which people live and die. So it, as much as there are people in her stories who are villains, it's nobody's fault that she dies. No, 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 no. 
And who knows where she was in that particular moment with Mark either. Like maybe she was in a moment of reprieve from her. We won't know. And thinking about a song like, you know, I'm no good. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you might describe Amy's on record persona. Like, how does she present herself on record here? How would you describe the pop version of Amy Winehouse? Because we know that pop stars and the way that they reflect themselves in their music is a version of reality, not always necessarily the total thing. Maybe it's sometimes it's closer to reality than it is other times. How would you describe Amy Winehouse on record here? And like on a song like, you know, I'm no good, maybe being a good example. I think what she does there that is part of the many levels of brilliance of this album is she kind of takes on like a Frank Sinatra personality, but she's this creature of the night. She gets involved with these terrible men, mm-hmm. but like she's in control of the mayhem. Uh, you know, when she's saying, you know that I'm no good, she's also saying, I know I'm no good. And she's rev- in it a little bit. Right. No good also sounds pretty good. Like, no good sounds like a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> yeah. So it's very much the devil may care, like dude in a suit from kind of Rat Pack kind of thing. Totally. And that kind of masculine-ish energy, I think, is partly what makes her persona so interesting because she references so many different things in her lyrics. She's got this combination of a little bit. It, it almost feels like a, like a 40s movie script. Like she's very good at setting up these sort of hapless characters and she sort of insults herself and she insults them. And then she'll right. make, <laughs> make references to hip hop and booze and then she has has this sort of strangely almost like drunk way of singing to begin with. Like a little slurred. Yeah, it, it gives you kind of almost like a swingers kind of vibe. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love what you're saying also about her kind of adopting masculine poses. Like she has a real like in control attitude over this. Like she's sort of blase, says he's in the place, but I can't get joy. There's this pithy way in which she narrates the scene and sort of floats above the whole thing that lets you know she's in complete control at all times. Upstairs in bed. It's interesting that she presented as very femme, but then her like singing is not at all Mm. like she doesn't use a whole lot of those tropes at all. Mm. She's not a particularly feminine singer and she doesn't truck in anything particularly girly. Like she sounds more like some like wacky sailor or something like she does. You know what I mean? Like she doesn't. He doesn't do anything that would remind you of Diana Ross or... Right, totally. It is not like femme glamour fluttering. No, no. The, and there's a certain kind of melodrama in that singing that she doesn't do any of that. I mean, she, she sounds more like Nick Cave than those guys. Like Totally. Oh my God, yes. There is a way in which she really did torque that entire paradigm, especially one thing she never does technically is she's not a breathy singer. Like her singing comes from her fucking gut. Like she doesn't do a lot of like, "Ah," like she's not the Cocteau Twins. (laughs) Like she's a really deep voiced female singer. And part of what makes the whole thing weirdly like, I mean, talk about there's some kind of brilliant Lauren Berlant essay to be written about confidence and I don't know, empathy here because Amy really sounds completely in control, even when she sounds weird and horribly and drunk. Like she just projects a certain kind of, like she's got it. Like she weirdly projects strength. 
even because she's like this tiny little person wobbling around looking all fucked up and shit. Every yeah. time she gets back on the mic, it sounds like, well, I mean, except I saw her at that period where things started to go south and, you know, she was on stage not drinking. And at this point, there was like hourly updates on like what's going on. And, you know, she was at the Highline Ballroom and right. seemed absolutely miserable and sounded really good. But she was making jokes about like I, at one point she lifted up something and she's like, it's just water. It's just water. You know, and she <laughs> sounded great, but seemed completely miserable and very much like she was literally in jail or something. It was a very strange, mm. unhappy experience. What's crazy to me about this record in retrospect, and I think it's encapsulated in the lyric, I cheated myself like I knew I would, is this sort of feeling of inevitability of her right. crash. Like I listen to this album and I hear somebody that feels almost proudly resigned to their own self-destruction. And I think that that is one of the most haunting and chilling aspects of listening to this album posthumously that maybe was framed in the in the moment as before we knew where this was going per se as something not inspirational i don't think that's the right word but as something at least sort of like you were on her side with it yeah. there's some part of me that was listening to it this time and looking back at it and wanting to just shake yeah. her and be like there's a sort of bold as you were getting at because she always does sound like she's incredibly sure of what she's saying in a weird way but like feeling of inevitability to her downfall the way that she goes, I go back to black. Like no matter what's gonna happen, like my odds are stacked, she says, I go back to black. You know, it's like this feeling of, yeah, this is going to end badly and I know that. I can never say for myself, I took her at face value. I assumed that she was in control. So I didn't hear the doom yeah. at the time. I just thought it was a great record. It's sort of like when you meet people who are really evil, but of course you're not used to meeting evil people. So you don't think they're evil the first time. Like you have to meet them like right. 10 times. And then you're like, I think there's something really wrong with this guy. Like I took all this daring do like devil may care attitude. I believed her that she was in control. So I didn't find any of this particularly haunting or, or upsetting. Right. Well, no, that it goes back to our earlier conversation about is like, how do you absorb something in the moment? And then how do you absorb something when there's a huge event like this death? Like it totally reframes the whole thing. Oh God, it's so different. Now. I hear a song like Back to Black. And of course, that's a really dark song, generally speaking, on, on the record. It, that song gives me a little bit, actually, Nancy Sinatra, a little like bang, bang. There's kind of that spaghetti Western guitar. Absolutely. Yeah. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang, that awful sound. Bang, bang, my baby shot me. It almost feels like a funeral march when you listen to it. There's a whole part in the midsection where it slows down to like a dirge and sounds like a funeral march. I always think that song sounds kind of Irish. Totally. I, I don't even know what I mean. I don't even I think that's meaningless. No, no, I mean like James Joycean, doom and gloom, funeral march through the moors or something. Yeah. 
I hear that totally. And it's a little bit sinister feeling. And like, again, it loops back to what we were saying, which is like, there was a way that we absorbed this record in the moment. And now it's impossible. Of course, I go back to it and I hear it now and I remember how I felt in 2007 listening to it. But I also have this overlay of knowing how this story ends that I cannot escape now when I listen back to these songs. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Just in quickly returning to the idea of the contrast between as you were laying out some of their choices to return to this like super commercial pristine production paired with this self-lacerating and darker material and character that Amy presents on the album. I feel like no song lays that out more clearly to me than the song Tears Dry on their own, Mm -hmm. which I was going back and reading Douglas Woke's review of it in Rolling Stone at the time, and he described it as ain't no mountain high enough recast as self-recrimination. That's good. I just love the idea of some of the power of this record being provided by the contrast between her ability to really lay bare these really complex things within herself and really look inwardly in this bold way at the struggle that she was going through with her addiction and with this breakup, et cetera, with these sort of like super bright and poppy throwback jams that we all recognize. The way that that song is so obviously nodding at Ain't No Mountain High Enough, one of the most recognizable and ebullient, shamelessly ebullient songs of the Motown era and recasting it through the lens of this depressive drunk sailor as we've been laying out. He walks away, the sun goes down, he takes the day, but I'm grown. And in your way, in this blue shade, my tears dry on their own. Are there other songs on this record for you that stand out as telling us something essential about why it's so memorable and why Amy is such a singular artist and this record is so one of a kind in the way that it's remembered as today. I mean, what they managed to pull off is an album that sounds very much like an album Mm -hmm. while having lots of songs that worked really well, like Love is a Losing Game, as singles. Somehow, and this is part of the magic trick that I don't understand, like I don't particularly like retro albums. Like it's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. And it, at first I think I was resisted to it, the album, because I just find it distracting. Meaning the retro guys, the sort of like overt retro posturing. Well, because like then I'm going to be suspicious. I'm like, okay, so I love all the same music too. And like, okay, am I just going to be one over? For the same reason I was sort of suspicious of like the Dap Kings and Budo Spin. It's like, okay, I love these original sounds so much. Like, well, of course I'm going to eat this up. You have a bunch of fucking people sounding like Apache and it's just begun and give it a return right. it loose. Well, of course I'm <laughs> yeah. going to like that album. Like, you know what I mean? And you're, like, you're reminding me of Bruno Mars, my struggle with Bruno Mars, generally speaking, actually. Right. I love Peter Hernandez. But at a certain point, like when things are good, hopefully one's goofy, neurotic, pointless, you know, resistances and defenses fall away. And I think after a while, I didn't give a shit that it sounded like old music or didn't because there's just something so great about how, I mean, I'll say something about it. It keeps moving. As much as there is this darkness around her and the music, it's not a very atmospheric or sluggish record. It's not a Radiohead record. And it's 35 minutes long, which is right. an amazing aspect of it as well. Which is the most retro thing about it is let's get 10 songs. And, you know, it's also a very huge record for Mark Ronson, obviously. So it's a story of the two of them. I mean, talk about a mutual elevation here. Like, yes. 
they rocket each other into the stratosphere and there's actual songwriting like this isn't something that they just rolled into the studio one day and improvised like it feels very written it feels very thought out there's a lot of work you can hear the work you can hear all the musicians you can hear all the songwriting in the old-fashioned way they were earning that entertainment dollar and why not reward them and it's a blast whatever was going on in her life this record just sounds like a huge amount of fun this is such an important point and i'm really glad that you brought this up because for all of the turmoil we're talking about that's encapsulated in this record and it really does boldly share very dark and obviously, as we were saying in retrospect, somewhat disturbing reflections on her state of mind. It's never less than fun. And I really think that that's an important element of why this record is so incredible and so fun to return to is that it's a blast to listen to even through all of the pain and heartbreak, which is one of Amy's gifts here. Something that is not easy to achieve necessarily. Yeah, you get the horny dads and the wine moms. Like you get get everyone, you know, you get everyone. Yeah. It never loses its pop sensibility. I think that's maybe a big important part of this. Like, it's also never less than incredibly catchy and earwormy and hook driven and, you know, all of that kind of thing. I would push back a little bit on that because, you know, I'm never 100% sure what this word pop means because me neither. <laughs> I'm very comfortable with, you know, its original meaning, which is simply popular because this is a good example of, I mean, it, it tends to come into standard for sort of shiny melodic music, but until this record <laughs> was very popular, this isn't something that someone would have said, oh, yeah, that's pop. They would have said, I don't know what they would have called any of this it was pop in the sense that the music it's nodding at was pop though sure you know, it's it is pop in the sense that ronnie specter and diana ross were pop yeah and but in the great sense that you know like all of a sudden little nas x redefined what's pop and not by making an extremely unexpected thing turn into literally the biggest song of all time like sure a retro 60s kind of thing like on paper there has to be at least one more on at the, at the record company who's like this is a terrible idea and i'm sure now he says that he never said it but right Everything that happened on this record doesn't seem like the thing that you would have done at this point, because nobody had really mounted something as full on retro and also as successful as this. It feels like a magic trick because as always happens with these cases, like nobody really know. I mean, people in the record business and all kinds of businesses like to pretend that they knew, ah, yes, well, we going into this album cycle, we we had these four bases covered. Like nobody fucking knew. Like right. Mark and Amy did with Salam, like do all this lifting and it just, it worked somehow. And right. nobody knew that that was going to happen. A, what do you think made this so popular and what exactly allows it to rise above pastiche, do you think? Some of that is the weird accident of history that whatever 2007 was, a thing that I can neither describe or control or account for, it meant that this is something that lots and lots of people wanted at that point. They wanted these textures. They wanted something that wasn't completely contemporary. That move backwards felt good for some reason in a way that I think now probably wouldn't. I think at the end of the day, First, I'm I'm listening to the band because I'm being a fucking nerd and an idiot. And I'm like, I'm like, did they get it? Did they really get that sound? So I'm just being an asshole. Well, you're Mark Ronson's biggest nightmare in that way. We've already had words. Um, But then now I like I don't even notice that shit. And I just hear her. Right. And her fantastically strange interpretations of her own songs are just no matter how much I think I know how the song is going to go, she does something that I, I can't predict. What makes it not pastiche, that's an interesting question. I can't swear that it is or isn't pastiche. Yeah, yeah. Pastiche and camp are two things that are, I think it's sort of like porn. You know, you, you know it when you see it. 
You know, I think a pastiche is something that simply doesn't work. Mm. Like public enemy is pastiche, but it works. And so we call it collage or we call it right. the bomb squad or something. At some level, this is a pastiche. It may be one of the purest examples of pastiche we have. It works and we like it. So we call it something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. I think things can be a lot of things at the same time. And I've used the word cynical a few times, which has to do with intentionality. And I don't know. I, I don't think anyone involved in this project was at that kind of insincere level of cynical. Maybe I mean it more like conscious, like there must have been discussions where, you know, Mark Ronson was talking to Amy or someone else with the record company being like, do we think this will work? Or maybe he was, you know, maybe he had to defend the project from the record company. Who knows? And I think a lot of these things become, you know, sort of hindsight successes. I think what you're getting at is sort of what people connected to so much about Amy in this period is that combination of her instincts to keep this accessible, but also to convey like a true moment of deep sorrow and sadness and conflict and pain and struggle was a really potent combination for people in that moment. Absolutely. So as we were talking about, this record kind of organically blows up into something I think much bigger than anybody had ever expected to. Amy ends up winning Grammys for record and song of the year for rehab. Uh, thank you to everyone at Island Records. Everyone at EMI Music Publishing. To Ray Ray and Joe. 10 years this year, Ray Ray and Joe. To Mark Ronson and Salam Romy, to my mum and dad. For my Blake, my Blake incarcerated. And for London, this is for London, because Camden Town ain't burning down. The album sells a bajillion copies. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's a lot of copies. She is a huge tabloid fixture, as we pointed to, and as we've been alluding to, and I think talked about enough at length, she really begins to unravel in public simultaneously to this record becoming the biggest thing on earth. She is becoming much more erratic. She's missing shows. Right. When she shows up at shows, she infamously is often unable to complete them or to hold herself together. She's booed a lot. She shows up late. It's a really interesting moment for a star, and I think this does happen in pop history quite a bit, where like someone is at the absolute pinnacle, it seems, of their commercial success, and at the same time seems to be at the absolute nadir of their personal life. The example that pops to mind is George Jones, who somehow mm. didn't die, although the, by all accounts he should have. And you know, he's on his like ninth comeback when he does He Stopped Loving Her Today. It's like 1980 and you know he keeps hitting these heights as he's like even momentarily like homeless he struggled so much for his whole career and somehow just kept the you know he was no show jones he didn't show up for a lot of shows but um he was going through a pretty similar kind of like what's going on cycle and just happened to live longer somehow i also want to say like in this really thorny way that i don't quite know how to unpack i do think some of her this isn't the right way to say it because this is addiction and it's really serious and it's not something but like there was something about her rock star badass i don't give a fuck energy that i also think added to why people were attracted to her oh absolutely even in the fullness of the meltdown even as she was so 
clearly struggling. I think people were attracted to somebody that wasn't this manicured, perfect presenting pop star. They liked that she was a, not just a throwback sonically and aesthetically, but also had that rock star energy of like, I'm fucking self-destructive and I'm on a tear right now. Well, because nothing sells more than death and you're watching someone literally sort of tango with death in front of you. Right. As much as there's this awful prurient like, hey, look at these ravaged photos of whoever it is that we're looking at who's suffering, which is kind of an awful thing. Yeah. Not to give too much dignity to gossip hounds, but we love a comeback, like a Brendan Fraser or somebody who, you mm -hmm. know, not that I, I don't know his struggles particularly, and I don't Great know Great example. I love that. But, you know, you know, he's somebody who seemed like, I don't know, like he'd wandered away and seemed to be struggling and he's, he's just come back and is being just so embraced. Robert Downey Jr. Right. People like to see someone battle the demons and then yes. as much as they're enjoying this awful schadenfreude, like watching someone fall apart. They're also, I think, hoping like, yeah, but she's going to bounce back, right? And this is great fodder for her future music. And like, especially because she had used those struggles to such great effect in Back to Black. You know, and we haven't even mentioned Whitney at all, but like, in some ways, that's one of the most important parallels that we have these, I mean, my God, one of the greatest singers ever to live. People have turned out to be more violent and ghoulish than awful than I ever could have thought. So maybe I'm just being naive, but I'll say this I'll, at a certain point when you're watching someone fall apart, you know, at that point you're selling death, like, which is sort of the rock and roll lifestyle is so appealing because right. I'll delusion like i'm going to be young and live forever and yada 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 and that's obviously not true it's a pretty vampiric relationship what's on the table at that point when someone is suffering like that is death we're not talking about love we're not even really talking about drugs anymore we're talking about like is this person gonna fucking die in front of us yeah and right and that almost harry houdini kind of vibe is what starts to kick in mm -hmm. looks like a feeding frenzy of fish it, that's what this felt like yeah and she had become like emaciated and i mean she it had gotten to a point where it was so visibly disturbing what was going on with her do you remember the year in which you saw that show you were talking about was it like towards the end end or was it like more kind of like oh eight oh nine uh, 2007. Okay. So it was right after Back to Black came out. Yeah. Because I remember seeing her in that phase too. And it was clear that she was drunk on stage when I saw her. I think I saw her at South by Southwest. And it was clear that she was drunk and she was really late to the show, but she still like banged out the show and it was incredible. And I remember her being just like totally intoxicating and she completed the show and sang all the songs and sounded great. By the time we were in 09, 10, 11, et cetera, like it was no longer the kind of thing where she could get on stage and do that anymore, it felt like. And then of course, obviously, as goes without saying, in 2011, she passed away from alcohol poisoning. And in going back and reading some of your reviews at the time of Amy's work, you were generous and very tuned into like a lot of the things we've talked about here that make her so special and you liked a lot of the music but i got the impression that you weren't as like swept up in it as many other people were what's your evolution been in terms of like how you feel about this music i think i have a sort of perhaps very predictable and kind of basic reaction to her decline and death you know she ticks a lot of boxes i'm you know i'm always gonna be thinking about other addicts i've mentioned the movie several times because i think it's it just really turned me around and i just fell completely in love with her in a way that i was just sort of admiring and liking stuff she just got me and ever since seeing the movie i've just i love her stuff I mean, there are people like, you know, Biggie dies and like, that's a huge fucking deal. And I go on to love him probably about as much as I did before. I'm just sad that he's gone or mm -hmm. somebody like Tupac. I didn't pay 
quite enough attention to just no really good reason and so since he died i've come to like his rapping a lot more than i did and you know amy is someone i like a lot more now just because i've had time to sort of think about it and also when people die and they have a coherent body of work with a beginning and an end it's much easier to chew on it and figure out what's going on when someone's still alive it's a more complex situation and you know maybe they're alive and they're bugging you like i think about how much shit people talk about you two and bono and i think i'm not even a particularly like massive you two fan but i kind of think like come on guys like in a way when people die they calcify at the age that they die at and we don't have to go through that journey that we go through with a lot of artists where there's like artistic decline and they try things we don't like and they become fuddy studies or whatever the hell you want to say like youtube being a great example of this that like made epic scale hugely commercially successful hugely ambitious albums but now sort of is like derided by like mainstream pop culture in some sort of way yeah and someone like bono is like a, an interesting way to expand how we look at amy like he's done all these sort of blowhard things he's a tax evader like there are all, all kinds of reasons to not like bono but come on the first few u2 records were massively important and it changed how everybody looked at what they could do with that setup. Were they to die, all of a sudden, we would feel much more warmly towards a lot of things totally. that were annoying before. So what was the public reaction to Amy dying? Like, it seems sort of inevitable. It seemed like, you know, there's a slide with certain people. I, I remember somebody talking about, Wasu has a book called Stay True, and he was a huge Nirvana fan. He's younger. And so I think Nirvana was kind of his first big thing. And he said that when Kurt died, it seemed like he almost sort of had died. They were in Italy and he almost died. And so like there are people who go on it sort of decline and Whitney is one and, and Amy was one. Like it's not completely shocking when she died. Like there had been this struggling for at least six months. And so right. I remember not being all that surprised or moved by that moment. But now I find it infuriating and sad. I wonder how we would think about back to back. Like, we think about it as this titanic moment in pop history if she had lived and made more records or would it have been one on a series of journeys? And, and just speaking to your U2 thing, I have this experience with Madonna because I am the biggest Madonna fan. She was instrumental in forming how I think about everything and why I love music and why I love pop music and why I'm obsessed with pop stars and etc. And I struggle so, so hard now with the Madonna that I see in front of me. I feel sad that for the past 15 years, the way that the public is interfacing with Madonna is as this like over the hill, kooky old lady on Instagram who's like just trying to seem cool and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And like it bastardizes the memory of like what an innovator and incredibly cool, compelling, instrumental pop figure she was. And when somebody dies, like Amy, in this weird way, you don't go through that period with them. You are not subject to that. They're calcified as they were in that moment. And that's how Kurt is. That's how Biggie is. That's how right. Amy is, I feel like, in people's minds. Like, we will always remember her as this budding star on the ascent who was doing something really compelling and had only just begun to open up what that was gonna be. And in some ways, I think that benefits her legacy looking back on her because if there wasn't for this mythology that forms around the death, it's like, okay, we're dealing with one eh album and one really good promising album. And like, what does that mean exactly? But there's something about the fact that she died that sort of like makes that all seem so much more meaningful and also like allows it to only be that thing. Absolutely. And all we can do is just continually return to that thing and just wonder what could have been absolutely he's fierce in my dreams seizing my thoughts he, he floods me with dread soul he swims in my eyes by the bed pour myself over him moon spirit 
So let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. I almost feel weird talking to you about this because no, as no. we talked about before we got on the mic. I get the appeal. <laughs> I just want the audience to know that Sasha is not big on lists and doesn't think it's necessarily the value. And I don't disagree with him. Let me let me be accurate here to the kids at home, those scoring at home. Okay, it's rankings. Lists are fun. Yeah, it's very specifically rankings with numbers and pretending that there is some kind of thing to which the numbers refer. There is no thing to sure, which sure, the numbers sure. refer. So I want people to be more comfortable saying. I just like this instead of coming up with some yes. fucked up imaginary yes. axiom that's not even there. That's not real. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I get it. It's also, I, I think people should maybe be a little bit more comfortable with not having favorites, not having a greatest album of all time. Yes. They're dumb. Per- I like the game of arguing. I like the game of like, yeah. what makes someone great, which is what this is. I have a piece coming out about speakers and Harper's in about a month. And some of it's about scientism and the need for, especially males yeah. to sound like they have figured something real deep out. And really at the end of the day, it's just like, I like this. Well, as I mentioned to you up top, this isn't about our personal feelings about this. What this is meant to do is just try to assess how pop stars' legacies and careers are received in broader popular culture. Which is super fun. The way that the historical record changes in the way that I was talking to you about Luther Vandross is now like the fucking Miles Davis of TikTok. And I love that. Exactly, exactly. I love that song and I love Luther Vandross. So like, that's fascinating how this shit changes over time. I'm Exactly. I'm obsessed. And it turned me into what we were just talking about, which is why I wanted to get into this part of it with you because I think in the pop pantheon, if we were talking just about metrics, like Amy would be probably in what we call tier four, which I call sort of like the working class pop star tier, which is like, you know, she had really, when you get down to it, three hit songs probably when you really think about Valerie Rehab you know I'm no good she had one record really of note and her span of hit making was very short-lived unfortunately because uh, her life was short-lived so I think that would in my mind metrically put her in tier four but I think because of everything that we're talking about with like how huge that all looms because of her death I feel tempted to put her in tier three which is a category for artists that had one huge moment that sort of like reverberates through time and I sort of feel like that's where she belongs does that resonate for you like that somehow her early death has kind of inflated her sort of stature in the pop pantheon yeah well also there's you know as much as I get angry about charts and and all these easily gamed systems it doesn't mean everything but it means something and you know the fact that she had essentially one album really right. means that you can't if you're going to play this fake baseball stratomatic baseball that I <laughs> I think is actually lots of fun I, I, I want to be clear that my beef is was, yeah, yeah. is more with something else I get it yeah you kind of can't put her up there towards you know there's Beyonce and Aretha and Fleetwood Mac up there like you can't throw someone with one album up there so as much as I love her exactly I think like I, I mentioned Kesha to you as an example of a tier four artist to me as somebody that like I love Kesha but had like a really small contained moment of like like a lot of hits, right. but then receded pretty quickly from like being a super relevant pop star. Even though Amy's has less hits than Kesha right. and had probably even a shorter run of, you know, real relevance just because as we obviously she passed away. I feel like her <clears throat> footprint and her shadow just looms so large. And I think it has to do with the fact that like that one record mm-hmm. for better or worse is looked at as one of the greatest albums of the century. Like whether that's accurate or not, we can debate, but <laughs> I wouldn't say that. many say, I'm not saying we are saying that I'm saying, right. I, I like it a lot. I bet. But Sasha, I'm not saying that you're saying that I'm saying that that is how culture. Yeah. yeah. That is how culture 
assesses this. And it's what I'm kind of wondering about. Like, and I'm actually would be curious to hear what you think. And I'm glad that you're saying so, because is that actually, is that only because of everything we've been talking about? I don't know. It's hard to really even parse it all apart at this point. But the truth of the matter is Joe Schmo on the street, who isn't necessarily giving this that much thought or whatever. Like, I think that would be one of the records people would rattle off as like modern classic or something like that. You know what I mean? It's a modern classic. I'll go, I'll go that far. I mean, here's, here's a question. (laughs) Where would you put, I don't know why these two people occur to me, but Kelly Clarkson and PJ Harvey, like where, where do they go? Kelly went in three, three, okay. which is like where Amy, where, where we're talking about with Amy, PJ Harvey would be hard. You know, I don't know how to exactly like relate to PJ Harvey as like in the pop star canon. Cause she feels right. like slightly outside of that to me, but Kelly, we put in three, even though Kelly's got way more hits than Amy and way more big records than Amy and has had a longer career. So that's why it gets a little sticky to me, but I just feel weird putting Amy in tier four because it just feels like. Like the mythology of Amy Winehouse is so humongous in in the landscape. I think so far I'm with you. I think this sounds rated. This sounds right. Okay. <laughs> it's only one album, but I bristled at the greatest album of the century thing because that phrase kind of just, I'm never going to say okay. I'm always going to be like, that's too big a metal to lay on anyone. So like, no. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, if yeah. I had the buzzer, I'd be like, no, whatever it was. No. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm saying that's how it's perceived by the general public. No, no, I think you're right. The impact of that record, now that I've had a time to, just the word century freaks me out. Now that I've had a time to recover, like, <laughs> as single albums go, like that's a fucking huge album. And all the more so, as we said, because it has this mythical stature. I think that comes into play a lot with the two biggie records in that they are amazing records and Ready to Die. I was going to say, I think Ready to Die is more obviously perfect. Yeah. And at the time, I remember very, very clearly thinking like, holy shit, what a completely like perfectly formed and varied and like, yes, I mean, everyone likes to talk about Elmatic being incredible, which it was. And he was peak of his talent and powers in a way that like, I feel like Amy was still living into on that album. Like there was something like consummate about Biggie's talent from the jump. Oh yeah. He arrived fully formed as like the best ever. You know what I mean? He sounded like that was his fifth record. He's so pocket and Exactly. That and how do you think about Nevermind in that context? Nevermind is one of those records that frustrates all of these sort of things because Pitchfork just did, you know, the top albums of the 90s. And my first thought, I didn't even scroll down. I was like, okay, well, it's going to be funny how they find some clever reason to not make it Nevermind because here's the bad right. here's the bad news. It's Nevermind. Yeah. Do you have another idea? You're wrong. That's because of what it was like in the moment and also how right. history has only confirmed that a thousand times over. So like it's I, totally it doesn't matter what I think. It's just never mind. Like I don't want to fucking hear it anymore. So in a way, back to black doesn't line up with Nevermind and Ready to Die in those senses that on its own merits isn't as good as those two albums. To get into that crazy, crazy, you know, shootout mode, like you need to have a, an album that has no, as the kids say, no skips. No skips. <laughs> and yeah. back to black is simply not that good. To get to the actual like, 10 A plus songs. Like, you know, the, the album that Kurt had in mind, which was one of my favorite albums as a kid, which does it is Rocks by Aerosmith. Mm, interesting. That is an absolute no skip, perfectly sequenced, incredible hard rock record. Like that's so fucking good. Back to Black isn't like that, but Amy is sort of someone who hasn't been duplicated since. Right, singularity. We still only have one Amy, you know what I'm saying? Like, not that anyone really replaces anyone else, but. I think it's accurate to say that nobody has come in to fill the void. Even an Adele who's like doing some of the same gestures that she's doing feels like an entirely other thing. Yeah, Adele in some ways is the inverse because what we love about her is how, I mean, there are a lot of things to love about Adele, but how not vulnerable 
she is right. although she's singing about heartbreak and things like that she's together she seems really together as a person like think about how much shit she's gotten for her weight yeah is the kind of thing that sort of seems like it would have brought amy into full crisis mode and adele basically was like fuck you yeah say whatever you want who can and it sort of went away no adele seems like she has her act together so even when she is revealing heartbreak or whatever you're not like worried for her in the way that part of the thrill of the amy winehouse project and a part of the thrill of back to black is you were like should i be worried about what's going on here like there is an unpredictability here adele is mom adele is mom and i mean that in only the most positive sense or in some ways a, a neutral sense and then amy is like yeah your fucked up best friend that you wish would get it together but i think to your point very singular and i think we got to put her in three that's how i feel she just looms so large from such a little amount of work that like it's hard to say that she is lesser than that to me right all right so let's go with that my last question for you is is there an underrated amy song that we haven't talked about you said you liked some of the songs on lioness is there something that we haven't spoken about that we could send the show out on i think it's like smoke Oh, yeah. It's the one with Nas. Yeah, I love her singing on that one. It, she sounds so relaxed and you get so much of the grain of her voice. Also, I love the wacky quality of this record that you've got some of these very retro things. You've got, you know, these covers. I mean, I think Our Day Will Come is great. I kind of like the whole thing. These unintentional albums, even the Tony Bennett thing. I mean, his affection for her in the movie is so, is so, well, I don't know. I mean, it's not great, but like his appreciation of her as an artist is so moving. Like how he, yes. you know, just let her do her thing. Like she, he knows, he gets it. Well, what's interesting about bringing up Tony and Nas are they're two artists from the modalities that she was so fond of right. two of her heroes in that way approving of her and that's why i find like smoke which i think is what we should go out on a moving record maybe even beyond what it is as a song is because right. she loved nas and had like a lot of affection for him she shares salam remy with him in common and it was moving that he sort of signed off on that posthumously for her i mean the fact that she has a song on back to black that's literally me and mr jones and that he then came on and sort of posthumously gave her the stamp of approval felt touching in this weird way looking back after whatever after shed so let's go out on that sasha frere jones thank you so so much for being on the show my pleasure i'm deemed a heartbreaker like smoke girls ling around a player yeah 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 i never wanted you to be my man i just need company don't want to get the Okay, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Amy Winehouse, a tier three superstar. May she rest in peace. The judgment is rendered. And I want to say a big thank you to the incredible, legendary Sasha Freyer Jones for being on the show. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. Send in your disputes, your Pantheon ranking disputes, and we might air them on a future episode of the show. We are accepting voice notes at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Join our Patreon, Pop pantheon all access and you can go to patreon.com slash pop pantheon to join or click the link in the show notes of this episode come to gorgeous gorgeous december 3rd at resident dtla click the link in the show notes for that thank you so much to russ martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week thank you to seth kelly for all his help editing this episode and until we meet again have a wonderful life happy thanksgiving bye-bye came for joe lewis she said my man you need to laugh sometime classifies me as a boy until i have some wine you Colder than penguin pussy and her dismay. She's thinking that's just so silly to say.